Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. Welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole. And on today's episode, we are going to explore an interesting question that a listener submitted. And it's not necessarily interesting from the standpoint of it being super unique or all that different than, than what a lot of people are facing, but interesting in the sense that if you're like most listeners, you've probably listened to a bunch of podcasts, you've probably watched a bunch of YouTube videos, you've probably read a whole bunch of different articles. And so you realize there's a whole bunch of different strategies that we can use to implement better approaches to retirement planning. Now, the challenge is not an understanding that all these different strategies exist. It's really an understanding, how do I apply these different strategies? When do I know when to use that strategy versus this strategy? And how can I prioritize doing different things along the way? So that's really what we're going to explore in today's question. Now, before we jump in, just wanted to highlight a recent review on the podcast. I want to say thank you for those of you that have left reviews. This review is from username NFOS724, and the review says, I'm approaching retirement and have been consuming information on retirement topics for about a year. James Canole's podcast is by far the most informative, interesting, and straightforward source of information I have found. I listen to every episode and look forward to Tuesday mornings when I can listen to the newest episode each week. Thank you for the great and practical information. Well, thank you very much for that review. I appreciate that. And I appreciate all of you who listen. It's fun getting to see how many people are tuning in and are getting to really gain value from some of these episodes. So thank you for listening. Thank you for those of you who have submitted a review. If you've not done so already, always appreciate when people do that. So that being said, let's jump into today's episode and let's start with the question that's submitted by a listener. Okay, so here's the question. It says, Hi, James, not knowing if you'll use this question on the podcast, so if it can be kept anonymous, that would be appreciated. Absolutely. It goes on to say, I think I have a battle royale emerging between a desire to diversify and potential Roth conversions, I think mostly driven by RMDs. The battle is this for the gap years. I am 57 years old, and I plan on retiring in nine months. My holdings are $1.3 million in an IRA, $3.3 million in a brokerage account, $100,000 in an annuity, $100,000 in a Roth. We will be getting an influx of $80,000 of highly aged stock every year. I'm shooting for $150,000 of income. All told, we're super heavy in large cap domestic and only have 6% in bonds. So I am intrigued by this idea of using bonds. I was thinking about a bond ladder and the IRA to do three things. One, put a governor on the growth to avoid a big RMD hit in the future. Two, to allow the brokerage account to continue growing. And three, to shift money around without paying capital gains on the sales. To get to 59.5, I can employ the 72T distributions to avoid the 10% penalty. That may also allow me to use the gap years to liquidate any aged accounts and diversify further. Need more international small cap in value, he says in parentheses. I know there are many more data points for a true evaluation, but on the surface, is this a crazy idea? Many thanks. Well, thank you very much for that question. And, and certainly we'll keep this anonymous. I know a lot of you as you're submitting questions, if you ever want this to be anonymous, please do so. I'll never use anything but first names, but even that would be happy just to keep this completely private, knowing that a lot of you have recommended the show to friends and family and, and want to keep that private. So here's the way I look at this. Several things I want to look at. But number one, 
I start with just some basic math. You know, you have $4.8 million total in investments as you're looking at the IRA, the brokerage account, the annuity, the Roth, and you want to live on $150,000 of income per year. Well, the first thing I look at, just the basic litmus test here is if you divide $150,000 by $4.8 million, you get 3.13%. Meaning if you retire today and this is your portfolio value, you would need about a 3.13% withdrawal rate to support your income. And that's even before factoring in things like social security that will of course reduce how much has to come from your portfolio to maintain the same standard of living. Now, I'm guessing that $150,000 is after taxes. So depending on where you're pulling money from first and what accounts it comes from, let's assume that maybe you need closer to $180,000 pre-tax in order to end up with $150,000 after tax. Again, that was not a tax analysis. I did not look at the different places money would be coming from. I'm just using a nice round number. Well, even at $180,000, your withdrawal rate would be about 3.75% in order to generate that level of income. So on the surface, I look at this and say, yes, there's no reason why you couldn't be able to create a scenario where you could be able to implement this. Now, before I go further, I want to make a quick comment on this. A couple of things. Number one, some people will reach out to me either via comments on YouTube videos or they'll shoot me a note and they'll say, oh my gosh, James, you talk about these scenarios where people have $3 million, $5 million, $10 million or more. Do I need that much money to be okay? And just to reassure a lot of people, the answer is not at all, or at least I should say not necessarily. I have seen some people live extremely comfortably on just a couple few hundred thousand dollars. Now, these people had very nice pensions or they had social security and they were able to keep their cost of living down because they had no mortgage in retirement or maybe they lived in a a low cost of living area. So those people, even without extremely high portfolio values, they lived extremely comfortably. I've also seen other people who struggled significantly and they had a few million dollars in their portfolio. So as you're listening to this, I would urge all of you not to try to compare yourself to am I ahead or behind based upon these examples James is using as much as to say, can you use some of the strategies and the things that we're talking about to understand what you personally need to be able to fulfill the lifestyle that you personally want in retirement? So it's very much not a number driven thing in terms of how much is in your portfolio which is going to determine can you or can't you have a very nice retirement. So that's the first comment. Now, the second thing is a lot of people go through life thinking if I can just acquire enough, if I can just save enough, invest enough, have a large enough balance in my portfolio, then I just don't need to worry about this. Well, kind of. Once you have enough, you don't have to worry about running out of money. But as you grow your wealth, as you grow the different types of things you have going for you, complexity grows with it. And when complexity grows, gaps grow. And when gaps grow, you just start leaving way too much money on the table, whether it's with the way that you're investing or the tax strategies you're not implementing or the estate strategies you're not implementing or the the withdrawal strategies that you're not implementing or just the way that you're doing things, the more you have, the greater the impact the things that you do or don't do, either for better or for worse. So I use these examples when people are having sometimes $3 million, $4 million, $5 million or more, which is more than the average person has, of course, when they retire. But I use these examples because that tends to be the kind of people who reach out to work together. So I see those situations most often. But number two, sometimes it's only when you have gained more wealth and have this that the burden 
is sufficient to require these kinds of strategies. So I had one person, for example, comment on a YouTube video. They said, hey, this this is great feedback for someone who's maybe in the top 1%, but what about the rest of us? And in a non-judgmental way, of course, I just kind of said, this is only needed for people who have this level of wealth. If you don't, then not a good or a bad thing. You just don't need this. It's just not applicable. It's irrelevant. So I recognize that. And so just wanted to point out that number one, if you're not feeling like these things apply to you because you're not at this level of wealth, you don't need to be in order to live a perfectly comfortable retirement. But number two, having more, gaining more value in your portfolio, bigger amount in your savings account, greater amount of stuff, it doesn't tend to reduce the anxiety you have with finances. In many ways, it just changes the type of anxiety. It's not the worry of do I have enough or not. It's the worry of am I doing everything I possibly can to make the most of what I have. Now, anyways, sorry for that tangent. Going back to the question that the listener submitted, real quick thoughts on this question. Number one, none of this will be advice. Number two, there's a lot of details I don't know. I have no idea what your social security benefit will be. I have no idea family or marital status. I have no idea your risk tolerance. I have no idea really what that influx of stock means. Does that mean stock compensation? Does that mean you'll be gifted shares or receiving shares? So there's a lot of details that I don't know here, but here's the way that I want to approach this. I want to look at this by pointing out the areas that I would like for you to consider in order to do better. Again, a lot of people come to us not because they're trying to ask, am I going to be okay or not? Am I going to run out of money? They already know that they have enough to be okay, but they want to do better. They want to understand where are the gaps in my plan? What am I overlooking? What could I do to enhance what I'm doing? Because I've worked too hard and sacrificed too much and deferred too much to just sit here and let this money grow unaccompanied by a great strategy to help me get as much as possibly I possibly can out of it. So with that being said, looking at the areas that I want you to consider that you could probably do better, maybe do better, I'm just going to pull out some specific excerpts from this question. The first one, this is right from the listener. He says, I'm intrigued by this idea of using bonds. I was thinking about using a bond ladder in the IRA to do three things. The first of which is to put a governor on the growth to avoid the big RMD hit at age 72. So the goal here, this is me now speaking, not the listener question. The goal is to avoid a significant RMD that would come at age 72. And I see this as an area where I'll talk about this a lot. Other planners will talk about this a lot. There's a lot of just content on this. And there's this gigantic fear about what required minimum distributions will be. And in some cases, those fears are absolutely justified. In others, we've made too big of a deal of this, if I'm speaking honestly. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look at this example. Let's say that this this listener has $1.3 million in his traditional IRA. Let's say he doesn't touch it from now until the time that he's 72. So that's 15 years. If that IRA grows at 6% per year for 15 years, the 1.3 million will grow to about 3.1 million. Well, if you have $3.1 million at age 72, your RMD that first year will be right around $118,000 total. Now, that's a lot of money. It is taxable, but keep in mind, it's not as if it's going to force the listener to take out a significant amount more from his IRA than he would want to based upon his living expenses of $150,000. And I don't know his social security benefit. And also keep in mind that at this point, that's $118,000 in future dollars. Meaning if we're looking at his living expenses of $115,000, we say, oh, wow, almost all of that's coming from your RMD. Well, not really. Keep in mind that $150,000, it might cost $250,000 for you to maintain that same standard of living. 
So expenses have gone up by that time. Tax brackets assume they stay the same, but just index for inflation. Now, they're not, of course, going to stay the same, but in general, tax thresholds will index for inflation, so they'll keep climbing. So $118,000 is an RMD at that point. Really, at first glance, it's not all that scary. Now, I'm not saying we want to pay more in taxes than we need to, and we don't want to implement smart strategies, but sometimes when I project out what people's required distribution will be, it fits very nicely within their plan, meaning it's not as if, if left unchecked, this is going to grow out of control. What we want to avoid is let's say if you had double or triple the amount in pre-tax accounts and that just kept growing or compounding or it grew by more than 6% per year and now all of a sudden you turn 72 and you have significantly more that you have to take out of your portfolio because of required distributions, that's the problem because now it's pushing you into a higher tax bracket, not because you want to be there because you want to spend more, but because you're being required to take money out. So why do I say this? I say this because sometimes people say, you know, for example, in this question, he said, can I put bonds in my IRA to put a governor on the growth? So in other words, to limit the growth that's happening on my IRA. So maybe instead of it growing at 6% or 7% or 8%, it only grows at 3% or 4%, which means less in my IRA, which means less in RMDs. Now, in some ways, that's like saying you don't want a bonus from work because you'll have to pay more on taxes on it. Well, yes, you will end up paying more in taxes, but you're also receiving more income. So you're still receiving more overall. It's just a portion of the excess that will be taxed. So when we look at this, intentionally limiting RMDs or intentionally limiting the growth on our IRA just to reduce required minimum distributions tends to not be the best strategy because it's still leaving us with less money even after taxes. Now, I can hear a couple of you already saying, James, number one, you have told us that we should be concerned about RMDs and how do we plan for that. And number two, James, I've literally heard you say that you should own bonds in your IRA. And yes, now here's the thing and here's the difference. I have said put bonds in an IRA to limit growth and you should, but limiting growth should not be the driving reason for doing so. The driving reason starts with determining your overall asset allocation first. So before figuring out if you should put stocks or bonds and cash in your IRA or Roth IRA or your brokerage account, start by understanding what is the right overall asset allocation first. How much should you have in stocks, bonds, and cash before paying any attention to where you're going to hold those investments? Once you have that number, say it's 50% stocks, 50% bonds to use an easy example. Well, once you've determined that, and you should determine that based upon your income needs, your risk tolerance, where you're going to be pulling money from, after you've determined that, then you take the bond portion and try to fill up the IRA first before owning bonds in your brokerage account or in your Roth or anywhere else. But if you instead, for example, maybe you have a 100% stock portfolio, and I'm just saying this to use round numbers, not as a recommendation. But if you have a 100% stock portfolio that's going to implement your strategy or be used to implement your strategy, well, then owning bonds in your IRA just to limit the growth, it backfired. You, yes, will have a lower required minimum distribution, but you'll also have a lower portfolio balance, which means after taxes, net net, you still are ending up with a lot less. So yes, I want people to be mindful of required minimum distributions and what that will look like, but I don't want them to limit their RMDs just for the sake of limiting them, because doing so would be like telling your boss, no, I don't want this year's bonus because I don't want to pay any more in taxes.
So that would be an area that I would consider, again, if you're looking to do better with what you're doing, how can you enhance this? I would reconsider the way you look at RMDs here. The second excerpt is in one place you said, all told, we're super heavy in large cap domestic and only have 6% in bonds. So I'm taking that to mean you're 94% large U.S. stocks, 6% bonds. And that's probably been a very good performing strategy for the last 10, 12, 14 years. It has done very well since the bottom of the 2007, 2008 market meltdown. Now, just because it has done super well does not mean it will continue to do super well. I actually saw a report the other day, literally just in the past couple of days, where it ran a scenario. And it ran a scenario of two people retiring in the year 2000 with a million dollars, and both of them were taking out 5% per year to live on. Now, the two different people living on the same amount, but one owned the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index in their portfolio, and the second person owned more of a global portfolio with a lot more focus on small companies, international companies, emerging markets, real estate, just a much more diversified mix of global stocks with a greater concentration on small and value. Now, this is not to say Vanguard's good or bad or this other portfolio is good or bad, but it was just seeing what happens. So two people starting with the same exact amount, one person in the Vanguard total stock market index, which is just, it's 100% stocks and all US stocks. It's going to be a lot heavier in large companies because those make up most of the US stock market and much lighter on small companies versus the other portfolio that's much more global, has international, has emerging markets, has a greater tilt towards small companies and value companies. And it saw what would the impact be if they both begin taking out 5% of their portfolio. Well, the person who's in the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index, and of course, by the way, this isn't actually a real person. It was a back-tested scenario starting in the year 2000. Well, the person who had all of their money in the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index, they ran out of money in the year 2018, which of course is what we want to avoid in retirement is running out of money. Now, you're probably listening to that and saying, well, that does not make any sense. If you start with a million bucks or any money and you take out 5% of your portfolio, even if that money is all in cash, it lasts for 20 years. Of course, that doesn't take into account any inflation adjustment, but you could take out $50,000 per year from a million dollar portfolio if it's all in cash, and that would last at least until 2020. So what was the deal? Well, in the 2000s, big US stocks had a very poor time. They, they did not do well. From 2000 to 2010, the S&P 500 lost 9% total return. So if you're too concentrated and you start pulling money out of your portfolio, well, what happens is you're taking money out of your portfolio and the market's declining. And when those two things are happening simultaneously, you start digging yourself a hole, which becomes more and more difficult to, to dig out of. So that individual would have run out of money by the end of 2018. Now contrast that to the global portfolio more of a tilt towards small companies, value companies, more in international and emerging markets and real estate. That person started with a million dollars. They've since been taking out 5% per year and their portfolio today would be worth two and a half million dollars net of all the withdrawals that they've taken. So what you can see is that's just the risk of being too concentrated in anything going into retirement. Now you can be too concentrated in US stocks. You can be too concentrated in international stocks. You can be too concentrated in bonds and real estate, anything. Because as you are working, really the only thing you care about is what's the average return on my portfolio. When you are not working though, and you're now living on your portfolio, you want to make sure that you own enough types of different investments, all of which fit within your financial strategy, 
And you want to make sure that to the greatest extent possible, you have something you can draw from regardless of what the market is doing. Now, both of those examples were 100% stock portfolios. Some people have 100% stock portfolios in retirement. Other people have a mix of bonds in there too, because bonds are going to be more non-correlated to everything else than stocks are. So this would be an area that certainly going into retirement, I would caution anyone against having too heavy of an allocation to one particular type of stock or investment. And I know that's easier said than done, because if you look at the performance of the last 10 years, you kind of think, why on earth would I own anything that's not a big US stock? Those are kind of the things that have done the best. Well, we have recency bias. And to us, you know, we as people were hardwired to look at the last six months or a year. You know, if you think long term, think, yeah, long term is like a year, two years, maybe five to 10 years max. Well, I want you to think even longer long term. And if you look over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 plus years, what are the different types of asset classes or investments that you should own? And can you own enough of them so you're not dependent upon the performance of one of them to be able to fulfill your retirement goals? All right. Another piece of the question is he said, in quotes, to get to 59 and a half, I can employ the 72T distributions to avoid the 10% penalty, end quote. Now, what that is, is if you want to retire before 59 and a half and you have money in an IRA, you can't just start pulling money out of the IRA without penalty. What you can do is take 72T distributions and the IRS allows you to calculate the amount that you have to take out, but you have to take it for either five years or until you turn 59 and a half, whichever comes later. So you have to take it until the longer of the two. So this listener, he sees 57 years old today. He wants to retire in nine months. I'm going to make the assumption that he's 58 by the time he's retired. Technically, of course, could still be 57, but let's just say 58. So there's a year and a half gap that you have to bridge until you can start pulling money out of your IRA without paying that penalty. Well, what you could do is you could take the 72T distribution, but then you'd be forced to take income from your IRA, at least until age 63. And that's going to require a certain amount of taxable income because whatever's coming from your IRA, yes, you avoid the 10% penalty, but you're still paying taxes on it. Now let's look at an overly simplified example real quick. Let's say that you have $1.3 million in your IRA, because that's what you told me. And let's say that you pull $150,000 per year for the first several years. So 150,000 is how much you want to be able to live on. I am ignoring taxes. Like I mentioned, this can be an overly simplistic example. I'm going to ignore taxes. And let's also say that that IRA balance does not grow. Just say it's all cash or it's all bonds and bonds just don't grow for whatever reason. Well, just to keep it easy, if you have $1.3 million in your IRA, then you could spend that down over the course of the next nine years. So over nine years, you've lived on the full amount of your IRA and then zap, there's, there's nothing left in your IRA. Well, at that point, you would have more in your brokerage account. It would have grown from about $3.3 million to $5.6 million after nine years, growing at 6%. And you'd have more in your Roth IRA. It would have grown to about $170,000 at 6% growth over those nine years. That's one option. And now you certainly don't have to worry about RMDs, but there's really not that much money that's in your Roth. So it's all brokerage account and a Roth. And, and your brokerage account's fairly substantial to the point that you probably do need to start worrying about taxes there because of its size. But here's an alternative. What if you completely ignored the 72T distribution? Again, this is not advice. This is just considering another alternative. What if you lived on your brokerage account for those first nine years? And instead of living on $150,000 from your IRA, what if you did those as conversions into your Roth IRA instead? 
So now what you have is you have the same exact or at least very similar taxable income because 150000 is still coming out of your IRA. But instead of that money being used to live on, it's just being converted to your Roth IRA. Now, what you get to maintain with that is you get to maintain the incredible benefits of tax deferral. Now, instead of your money deferring in your IRA, which has some substantial benefits, it's now deferring in your Roth IRA. So what's going to happen there is now you'd have much, much more in your Roth IRA by the end of that time period, hypothetically, at least $1.3 million more, plus whatever growth happened on it. And you'd have less in your brokerage. But what you'd have is you'd have a much smaller IRA balance, maybe nothing in your IRA, a significantly larger Roth IRA balance, and you would have a smaller brokerage account balance, not smaller in the sense of smaller than today, but smaller than what it would have been had you not touched it for nine years. So what you see there is now that's a way of getting your Roth IRA to grow significantly more by using using the taxable income that you're going to realize in the first few years as conversions as opposed to income. It's setting you up in a better position because ideally more of our money is in our Roth less is in our IRA. And the brokerage account, really the main value of that in retirement is, I don't want to say main benefit, but one of the many benefits of it is living on that allows you to keep your taxable income low, which allows you to convert money from IRA to Roth IRAs at a lower tax impact. So I will say the goal isn't necessarily to convert everything to your IRA, because at some point the cost of doing so offsets the benefits. But the more we can convert, the better. And this really ties back to the first thing that we looked at, which is even just running a projection of if it was left unchecked, what would your required minimum distributions be based upon your current IRA balance? And do we even need to do conversions? But if so, in general, what I want people to at least strongly consider is living on the brokerage account, using those years to convert from IRA to Roth IRA, It just magnifies the amount in your Roth IRA and everything that happens in there is completely tax-free, which really sets you up for a nice long-term retirement. All right. And then the last little piece here that I pulled out of your question, you say, quote, I think I have a battle royale emerging between a desire to diversify and potential Roth conversions, end quote. Now, some of these strategies you need to pick and choose between, or at least prioritize. You know, for example, should you do the 72T distributions to generate income or should you live on brokerage accounts and do the Roth conversions? That's an example of picking one or the other and prioritizing which is more effective for you. Now, the decision to diversify versus potential Roth conversions, those are things that you should be doing concurrently at the same time. Everybody should be diversifying. Not necessarily everybody should be looking at Roth conversions, but everyone should at least be considering it. So I would say there's not a trade-off between diversifying and potential Roth conversions. Diversifying starts with understanding what should your overall asset allocation look like based upon your income needs and your plan and how much income is going to be coming from your portfolio. So construct a portfolio that way, diversify that portfolio, and then see, do Roth conversions fit within my plan or not? Do I need them or not? Do they add value? Meaning does the cost I'll pay in taxes today get offset? by the benefit that will provide in the future. So I hope that was helpful. Again, the question here isn't so much, am I going to be okay or not? When we look at some basic math, you're going to be okay, assuming you do the right things. Of course, I can't tell you that definitively because I don't know enough information. But what I can say is if you have a withdrawal rate need of somewhere in the low to high 3% based upon your asset level, before we even factor in social security, which would reduce your withdrawal rate, you're probably in a good enough position to retire. 
The question to me isn't, are you good enough? It's, are you doing everything you possibly can do to make the most of what you're doing? So I would look at things like your asset allocation. I would look at things like not limiting the amount of your IRA growth just for the sake of reducing RMDs. I would look at your diversification being heavy in one type of investment today. I would consider, does that 72T distribution make sense or should you be implementing other things. But overall, I would say take a holistic look, implement a plan, and I think that you'll be in a good position doing so. I know easier said than done, but I think today we walked through some of the, what jumped out to me at least, as being more of the priorities in terms of getting that plan in place. So I hope this was helpful. Thank you very much for your question. Thank you for everyone who listened, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.